Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone. It is Stakuyi here. Uh, my name is Steven, again, aka Stakuyi from TikTok, and welcome to the History of Everything podcast. I'm actually saying that right this time. Uh, you won't know this, but uh, we've already done three different takes of me introducing this, and it's already been bad. But hey, welcome to the show. Welcome to a first time listen. Introduce yourself. Oh, I'm Gabby. I'm just here. <laughs> For those of you who have not seen our content before, my name is Stakui on TikTok. I also operate a YouTube channel, and uh, I like to annoy my wife with lots of history things that I've found over the years. And in general, I just like telling stories. And oftentimes it's about things that uh, no one really gives a crap about, uh, least of all her. But I love compiling all these little things that I've found and trapping her in positions where she is forced to listen to me. So, Gabby, today we're going to have a conversation, and I'm going to teach you all about potatoes. Yay! Not now, tomatoes? No, not tomatoes. I specifically requested tomatoes. I know you did. I know you did. But I spent many hours researching and preparing and putting things together. And let me tell you, as a uh, person with a strong amount of Irish blood in them, I was drawn to the story of potatoes. And it's just something that I have to teach you. And I want to teach everyone out there. So... If you like what is the you hear, let me know. There's a lot more things that we're going to cover in the future. But for now, let's go ahead and start with the history of potatoes. <laughs> so I need to stress why this is interesting in the first place. And that is that potatoes, you look at the modern day, right? You see where we are now. You see French fries. You see mashed potatoes. You see everything that we have. And it's incredibly popular, right? Like you can't not go to a McDonald's and not get French fries. Like that, that, that's a standard. That's a thing. That's something you always have to do, right? Sure. Oh, you know it. Don't you fight me on that. But at one point in time, potatoes were not popular. Like not only were they not popular, they were hated. They were thought of as evil things. So the story of potatoes starts around 350 million years ago. And yeah, I know we're going that back far in history, but that's, that's essentially when it is that they began. So when they started to evolve from the poisonous ancestor of the plant, nightshade. And if you're familiar with what that is with nightshade, nightshade is something that has been used historically in many different poisons, like specifically used to assassinate and kill people. That's nightshade. And potatoes and tomatoes and other plants, they're actually evolved variants of nightshade. That is where they come from. So things that include it, potatoes. Tomatoes, tobacco, chili peppers, and bell peppers. It's actually kind of interesting that bell peppers and chili peppers, completely different types of like spicy and not spicy, and you know, potatoes, like they all evolved out of basically the same kind of plant. Now, potatoes 
over time slowly evolved to their current form in the South American Indian highlands. Like if we know, if you know the story of potatoes, you know that they arose out of South America. That's where they initially came from. So they arose out of the highlands between Peru and Bolivia. Uh, human settlers had reached that part of the world around 15,000 years ago, and they managed to domesticate the wild potato around 8,000 or 8 millennia BC. So that's typically when that came in. And from that point on, the potato slowly started its journey across the continent. But it received a lot of attention in the 1500s. I know I can see your face looking at me right now. You're just like, I have no idea what the hell he is talking about, but I'm going to smile and nod. And that's exactly what it is that you are doing right now. I'm being supportive. Okay. But it received attention in the 1500s when the Spanish conquistadors started exploring along the coast of South America, especially after the 1530s when they were searching for gold in Peru. But instead of gold, they found potatoes, which, I mean, you can make golden fries from, but that's a bit of a different thing. So among the numerous discoveries, potatoes had received a very notable attention, and they brought that plant, among with many others, back to Spain and Europe from around the years of 1570 to 1593. So, like, that was the time frame where you started to see a lot of products that were being brought in from the Americas to Europe. So if you know, like the idea of the Colombian exchange and the exchange of goods, diseases and all the other kinds of things, then that that is what we were talking about here. This one, the potato came into play. Now, European adoption of the potato was slow, but it was steady. In the beginning, the Spanish government had used the potato as a reliable and easily transported food for their military and navy, who, while using them, did not succumb to scurvy. And if you know what scurvy is, like your gums are essentially rotting. It's it's a nasty disease, and it's something that only through like sufficient amounts of vitamin C yeah. can you not develop scurvy. And so because scurvy was referred to as essentially the sailor's disease, because long, months-long voyages of people eating literally crackers and salted fish. And meat and that's well vitamin c is a coenzyme which means it's actually used in making a lot of things in the body so it makes sense that if you didn't have vitamin c you just okay miss scientist <laughs> history and science guys. <laughs> so anyway the potato arrives in britain in 1585 belgium and germany in 1587 austria in 1588 and ireland in 1589 and france around 1600 sadly the local populations of these countries looked at the potato as absolutely unneeded. They want nothing to do with it. They thought it was weird. They thought it was poisonous, which, I mean, it actually is poisonous. Only the roots of the plant were actually edible. And that was totally unheard of in Europe. That was not a thing that they thought was normal at all. That, that was bad. And in some cases, they thought it was just downright evil. For many years, the potato was accused of causing a variety of things. So, Gabby, um, I'm, I'm going to list for you the things that they believed were directly caused by the consumption of the potato. Leprosy. <laughs> syphilis. Oh, my God. Early death. They're being very specific with that. Just early death. It was back then. Was early the early death like the age of five it might have taken off you know like a year or two or lowered the threshold from 30 to 28 you know maybe <laughs> around then uh sterility so it made you sterile but also coincidentally at the same time that it made you sterile rampant sexuality 
was also a um a thought of side effect of consuming the potato. So free birth control. So it was free birth control. The potato was birth control. Love that. I mean, technically, if you took a potato and you kind of used it to block no, things. No, thank you. Just keep reading. Scrofula. What's that? Narcosis. Oh, I'm getting to that. That was a whole thing that I found for it there. I'm going to present that because that's, that's a fascinating one. Narcosis and simply enough for destroying the soil where it actually grew because it sucked out so much nutrients, which admittedly, the potato is extremely nutrient dense. But yeah, that, that, that was the most mundane among all that. Now, you asked about scrofula, which I actually knew that would happen. And when I was reading this, I had to really learn what that was. So for those of you listening, I'm going to explain what scrofula is. Scrofula is a condition in which the bacteria that causes tuberculosis causes symptoms outside of the lungs. And this usually takes the form of inflamed or irritated lymph nodes in the neck. Doctors called scrofula cervical tuberculosis lampenditis. Cervical, in this case, referring to the neck, and lampenditis referring to inflammation of the lymph nodes, which are part of the body's immune system. And scrofula is actually the most common form of tuberculosis infection that occurs outside of the lungs. Historically, scrofula was called the king's evil. And this was because until the like late 18th century, doctors thought that the only true way to cure the disease was to touch a member of the royal family. I love that. Actually, that, that started me on a whole rabbit hole for it here. So, so check this. It is widely believed that for many centuries that the royal houses of England and France had a supernatural gift to cure scrofula. And this was by touching the people that were suffering from the disease. Uh, Clovis of France, who ruled from 481 to 511, and Edward the Confessor of 1042 to 1066 of England, were believed to be the first kings endowed with this particular gift. So actually, in Macbeth, Act 4, Scene 3, Shakespeare gives a striking and accurate description of the ceremony of the royal touch. The formal practice of the ceremonial rite can be traced back to the reigns of St. Louis, Louis the, uh, the Ninth of 1226 to 1270 in France and Edward III in England. Now, Edward III was the first English king to order a public display of the right. He used a medallion called a touch piece, which was given... Yeah, okay, okay, I know that sounds weird, all right? <laughs> all right. He used a medallion called a touch piece, which was given to sufferers as a sort of talisman. Initially... The ceremony consisted of the king washing the diseased flesh with water, but Henry VII actually discontinued this practice. Instead, the ceremony consisted of the king touching the afflicted subject while the court chaplain recited prayers presented with the, the touch piece, which was usually suspended by a silk ribbon around their neck. Uh, Edward I touched 533 of his subjects in one month, Philip VI, I know this sounds so weird when talking about rulers, because usually when you think about rulers touching their people, um, they usually had a lot of uh, uh, sexual scandals, so to speak. And that is just a thing. So Philip VI of Valois touched 1,500 at a single ceremony. Charles II, according to the registry, touched 92,102 people during his 22-year reign, at times 601 ceremony. Louis XVI, the guy who got guillotined to death, 
was anointed at his coronation with holy oil of Clovis on June 11, 1775. And three days later in the summer, he ritually touched 2,400 <laughs> stinking sufferers of scrofula. William III of England actually allowed the ceremony to lapse after a single performance with the remark to the ailing people, and I'm going to quote this, God give you better health and more sense. He then refused to touch the patients. The most logical one of all. Yeah, no, it's a, it actually is. But for centuries, not even centuries, for over a thousand years, they genuinely believed that this was the cure for this disease. So anyway, back to the potato, because I know we went off on a whole tangent about this. And that's, for those of you listening, that's going to be a very common thing. That's, that's just something that I particularly do. So be prepared. Now, regarding the potato, some of those things about it being a disease-causing plant, poisonous, etc., that it actually makes kind of sense as to why the potato got a bad rap. Uh, in the case of England, enter the English explorer Sir Walter Raleigh. So after reportedly giving a batch of these spuds to Queen Elizabeth I for a banquet in 1586, the kitchen staff mistakenly cooked the flowers, not the tubers of the potato, and threw the actual edible parts of the potato away which left the guests worse for wear, and Elizabeth was very unimpressed with the dirty vegetable that poisoned all of her guests. So like the tomato, the potato comes from nightshade, and the vegetative and fruiting parts contain a toxin, which is dangerous for human consumption. So you don't eat, again, anything in the potato, with the exception of the actual tuber. So it's no surprise, then, that after its arrival in Europe, it was mainly considered fit only to be used as animal feed, or the body of the potato was discarded so that the flowers were used for decoration. And this is because if you actually have seen a potato plant, like when they grow, they're actually really pretty plants. Like they're very lush, very green, and they have very nice flowers. So a lot of people grew potatoes, threw away the potato part that we know today, and just kept the actual like stock of the plants and the flowers for decoration. So some religious authorities even had deemed that the potato was unsuitable for human consumption as it was not mentioned in the Bible. Because it was not in the Bible, we, they weren't allowed to eat it. How many foods are mentioned in the Bible? I know, that? but that, that was an argument that they used. It actually got the nickname from this, the devil's apple. So for there was a time in history when the potato was referred to as the devil's apple. Aww. <laughs> now, back in the 16th century, though, in Spain, Peasants initially only resorted to eating the potato as a way of staving off famine. Because, I mean, if you're going to die, then people are going to, you know, they're going to do it. Religion be damned in that case. They're going to they're gonna try to not starve. Much of the Spanish landscape, however, wasn't actually good for growing the potato. A few isolated areas in northern Spain could grow it, and the potato flourished there. Basque fishermen were known to use them on their ship's stores for Atlantic voyages, and they would come ashore in Ireland to dry their catch. That, ironically enough, is likely where the potato was first introduced to Ireland. Those of my people that are listening to me here, uh, yeah, it may disappoint you, but the potato was likely brought to Ireland by the Spanish, so I want you to think on that. And they made fish and chips. <laughs> God, please don't do that. <laughs> So prior to the spread of potatoes, the number one source of food for most people in Europe was simple wheat, which makes sense. However, 
reliance on a single crop, and one that could be easily stolen once it was processed and stored, that wasn't exactly ideal. Not to mention the fact that any kind of disease that happens uh, that wipes out a particular kind of crop, if a disease comes along that wipes out the wheat crop, you're screwed. It's like the same situation when you saw the Irish potato famine, where a kind of fungus was killing off all the potatoes. So the number one food source for people in Ireland just disappeared, and a lot of people lost their lives that way. But, okay, despite the thing from, you know, potatoes being introduced, bread never disappeared from the diet of the Northern European population. The arrival of the potato would eventually displace it as the principal food of poor classes, but the introduction of the potato to European gardens and fields provided a much-needed additional food source that people don't really understand just how insanely amazing potatoes are. Because these things are cheaper, they require less preparation, and per acre, they provide a significantly higher caloric count. A lot more calories are produced by potatoes than by other foodstuffs. Despite that, natural suspicion of this alien food compounded with fears stoked by religious authorities would soon outweigh the ability of potatoes to keep a family alive on a war-ravaged continent, where military seizure of wheat meant that wherever a local population was relying on stored grain for survival, Outright starvation was, it was the usual, and it was an unfortunate result, but that's typically what happened. So, so here's basically the way this worked. Unlike nowadays, where we have MREs and that kind of thing for our military, uh, people had to do things called, well, conscription, both of people and also of seizing supplies. And the term for supplies case is requisition. And they would requisition these supplies from the peasants that they were going through the land of. So an army would be marching, marching through a territory, and if you're in your enemy's territory, you don't give a crap about those peasants, so you're just going to go and seize their food. So they would just seize all the grain and the animals and other stuff and kill the peasants if they were there or not. That's so sad. And burn down the homes and move on. I don't like this. It's, yeah, that's history. <laughs> that's what would happen. Potatoes were something that they were they'd be used as an additional food source because if everyone is relying on wheat, which is much easier for people to just steal and carry on, you could actually store these for long periods of time underground, and that is was something that made them incredibly valuable. So for almost two centuries after the plant was introduced, the potato was not embraced by any European countries. People had them, but rarely, and they were mostly for gardens or for show for that kind of thing until the Prussians came along and kind of forced it by military means. I love those Russian. No, the Prussians. I know you're screwing with me because I know that I've explained this many times before, but each time, each time it gets me. Okay, so like most armies, the Prussian army largely relied on bread. And in order to fight, every army has to be fed and the movement of these armies during Frederick the Great reign back in the 1700s would require a stupidly large logistical effort. So foodstuff had to be procured not only for the fighting men, but also for their horses. And to embark on this kind of campaign with the intention of living out in the country was considered only a last resort. Preparation was the key to military victory. There's that old phrase, an army marches on its stomach, and this is true throughout all of history. You a starving man 
can't really fight if he's too weak from hunger. The Prussian army had largely relied on bread, but this can't be taken long on campaigns as it would spoil quickly. So flour is how they would keep this bread viable. Uh, you would transport it as flour, and then in the field, you would make it through bakeries. They would just like make bakeries in the field, and sometimes this would be done through a consolidated effort, like in the case of the Prussians, or you have places like Russia, which, I mean, their logistical system was horrible. Now, for a Prussian soldier with a bread portion for one day was typically one kilogram. To bake 100 kilograms of bread, it took 75 kilograms of flour. For an army with an entitlement of 100,000 portions of bread, the daily requirement of flour was more than 70,000 kilograms. Additional to this, you had a meat ration, uh, spirits, so like alcohol of some kind. Typically, this could be in the shape of beer, but it might also be something harder, like maybe the kind of wine was provided, uh, and also vegetables. But once the bread supply was at least assured, a commander could largely plan this future operation without particular feeding concerns, as at the very least, you have bread, which was the mainstay. For a time, the Prussian soldier was actually treated better than the soldiers of basically any kind of army. The Austrian soldier is an example. He had to actually pay for his meat ration, which this usually was a catalyzing factor that caused a bunch of Austrian soldiers to desert and join the Prussians. The Russian soldier did not even receive his bread. He was simply given flour in the field and was told that, okay, you got to make your own shit. So he would have to knead the dough in place over his own individual little fire camp and make his own bread every day. Were they paid in money? Because that's not a lot of work. Yeah, but it depends. Okay, so there were some armies, especially when times were lean, that they might be paid with IOUs. There were others that were paid in like foodstuffs or goods, depending on the time. But yet by the 1700s, there, it was professional armies and they were typically paid a wage. But armies like what you see nowadays even have a thing where they take that money back by offering to sell the soldiers supplies and other stuff. And that it's a way for them to just keep on recouping the money that they're spending. I have a lot of thoughts. I'm not going to say them. Okay. But yeah, that, that's a thing. <laughs> Frederick it was actually level off uh, both the French and the Russian armies during the Seven Years' War, but despite his victories in the field, it was actually a French blockade on grain imports that caused him to place more of an emphasis on a vegetable that had arrived from a region around 100 years before he took the throne, but honestly, he had largely neglected. He hadn't done anything with it. That being the potato. I say that, but transporting the potato was not easy like okay you've lifted a sack of potatoes and how is that heavy yeah it's heavy and let me ask you what happens if you leave a potato on the counter what happens it rots it rots it rots fairly quickly too right not really it depends on the potato okay but if you have a potato that is out light gets on it etc like it starts to go bad fairly quickly you can't store yeah, it for it months at a time little roots. yeah okay so that that was a problem Potatoes are not actually very easy to transport, especially in the case of an army. It was much, much easier to transport sacks of flour. But what they did find was that using it as an alternate crop to wheat for his peasants, that would allow for more wheat to be taken from the peasants to feed the armies. So basically, the idea was give the peasants a bunch of potatoes, 
let them grow the potatoes and any wheat that they grow, we're just going to take the wheat and use it for the army. That way the peasants don't starve at home and the army gets a much easier food source that they can use. Frederick's great-grandfather, which was Elector Frederick William, had actually brought potato to Prussia after he had encountered it in Bavaria, where it was only being used as an ornamental plant in gardens. Frederick himself did not know the potato from his youth. He'd been raised on barley, grain, porridge, cabbage, and beer soup, which that, that's a whole other thing. Uh, but he's said to have come acquainted with it at the court of his sister, Wilhelmin, in Beirut, and to have immediately recognized its importance for the nutrition of Prussians. And there's actually a quote from this here that I'm going to go ahead and read. It has been estimated that in the 18th century, the yield of the potato per acre was 10.5 times higher than wheat and 9.5 times higher than rye, which was more than compensated for its lower caloric value. So to put that statistic another way, the net caloric value of a potato is 3.6 times that of grain. It's been estimated that 10 square meters of land would produce 500 kilocalories in meat, 2,000 in cereals, so for grains and other things like that. Amazingly enough, surprisingly, 6,300 in cabbage. You can produce a lot of calories worth of cabbage out of a very small amount of land, but that is dwarfed by potatoes, which is 7,200. You could produce 7,200 kilocalories worth of food in potatoes in the same land that you could produce 2,000 for grain. I love that you know that. What are we going to do with this info? I mean, hopefully not let an army starve. At least there's that. So this information would cause him to declare the following order. In 1756, on March 24th, Frederick the Great declared, you are to make the benefit of planting this crop clear to the lords and subjects and advise them to undertake the planting of potatoes this early year as a very nutritious food wherever there is empty space. The potato should be cultivated since this fruit is not only very useful to use, but also so productive that the effort put into it is very well rewarded. This was referred to as his potato order on March 24th, 1756. And this was actually one of 15 different orders that he would give regarding the crop. So there was 15 different orders and laws that he instituted to make people grow potatoes. I love him. Yep. Now, he saw the potato's potential to feed his nation and lower the price of bread. But naturally, there were some challenges, most notably overcoming people's prejudice against the plant, which, again, they thought was poisonous, uh, caused leprosy, made you sterile, but also gave you a stupidly high sex drive. So that I'm not seeing as many downsides here, to be honest. <laughs> He's actually one that coined the popular phrase, potatoes instead of truffles, which that's not a phrase now, but that was actually a thing back there in the 1700s. And he became famous for his military campaigns that he also launched a propaganda campaign for the subterranean field crop. And for both campaigns, his army was playing a major part to become a success. The royal order alone didn't actually succeed. Uh, his stubborn subjects refused to eat the bulbs for the longest time. In Prussia and in the rest of Germany, they were saying the phrase, was der Bauer nicht kennt, frisst er nicht, which, what the peasant doesn't know, he will not eat, which is true. They were unfamiliar with the crop, they didn't want to eat it, it scared the shit out of them, so they didn't want to do anything. Actually, in fact, the town of Kohlberg gave an official reply 
to the king's order. The things, in this case referring to potatoes, have neither smell nor taste. Not even the dogs will eat them. So what use are they to us? There's a story afterwards that he threatened to have the counselors nose and tongue cut off so that they couldn't smell nor taste anything anyway. But those claims are unsubstantiated. We don't actually know that that's the case, but so goes the rumor at that time. So how to fix this? Well, one of the most often repeated stories about his relationship with the potato concerns an ingenious tactic of reverse psychology. And the king embarked on this to increase interest in potatoes, rebranding it as a kind of royal vegetable by ordering his soldiers to plant the vegetable in royal fields and lightly guarding the crops, allowing soldiers or no soldiers, allowing locals to sneak in and pillage the vegetables. The Prussian king would conclude what is worth guarding is worth stealing. Basically, there was an idea for it here that in, in having soldiers guard this crop, it's going to show people it's valuable, but it's going to be lightly guarded so that there's going to be huge gaps in the line. They're not really going to be watching. That's really they, smart. Yeah. Like marketing before marketing was a thing. Yeah, basically, it's, it's, they're, he's pretending something is super valuable to get people interested in it. And then they go and steal it because that's humans. That's, that's what they're going to do. literally my entire method to get you popular. I pretend you're interesting. I, I'm joking. I don't know. We're literally recording a podcast for you this. And I don't know. No, screw it. It stays in. Just for you. So now whether or not this actual detail is true, we actually don't know. I know you're going to be really disappointed to hear that, but we don't actually know if this is true. So Kurt Winkler, the director of the House of Brandenburg Prussia History, claims that this story is actually older and that it might even originate in France, which you're going to see later on in the story. I have a whole other one that is that. For whatever reason, this recurring theme pops up multiple times, but it just appears to be a story. We can't prove that it's true, but it's like the most often repeated story regarding this. But he did do a lot of things. We do know that he did a lot more. He wanted to transform the potato from a dish that was just undesirable to something that was fit for a king. So that meant that he would serve basically every kind of course that he did as part of a royal diner. It would include preparations from his own household and chef of just potato dishes. And then he would consume them very loudly in front of his guests, telling them like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is, mm, oh, potatoes. These are fantastic. What an amazing crop. Just basically, it, it's being like a, like a really cringy social media influencer, <laughs> but for potatoes. I'm obsessed with the fact that he's obsessed with potatoes. It was a really smart thing. Just people were stupid and didn't want to get into it. Because they thought that it would make them sterile and horny. Superstitions. Okay, this just proves that people hate new things. No matter what, they're going to think every new thing makes them sterile. Honestly, that's a whole podcast idea for a future one. I know we're going to get off of a little tangent here, but the sheer amount of inventions that got stupidly big that people said, oh no, there's no way that that will succeed. That's a failure. Like the first bike. People genuinely thought like bikes, like there were newspaper articles calling bikes like the devil's carriage, that it was no way that people would actually catch on with it. We need to do an entire episode on just like conspiracy theories because people keep saying that in modern day, people make a conspiracy out of anything. But this has literally been going on forever. Yeah, it's, it's humans. That's, that's what they do. 
So he didn't just meddle with the case of potatoes. He actually meddled with a lot more things with Prussia, which I know we're going at this point. We're just talking about Frederick the Great, but the dude was amazing. So we got to talk about it. He meddled in the diet of his subject, not with just potatoes, but also with drinks, too. So he demanded that his subjects drink beer and not coffee. Mind you, this is because it was in order for, to protect the Prussian brewing industry because he was aware that self-sufficiency was preferable to relying on foreign imports. You see, it's, it's very funny. Coffee was a fairly recent introduction, like coffee and tea, into European diets. And it drastically increased people's productivity because they weren't just drinking alcohol all day. They were drinking things with caffeine. It's an amazing thought. I know. He ordered to go back to drinking beer because he didn't want to import coffee. He also planted mulberry trees because they would be planted to obtain silk, which was important for local textile industries. Because if you don't know, like mulberry trees, like silkworms eating mulberry, that's how they produce that. So th that's something he did. And that was in Prussia. But you might be wondering, because I've gone on about Prussia for quite a while now at this point. How does this connect to the rest of Europe? How? Okay. So we're going to get into How that. How did they get to Ireland is all I'm here for. We're, this whole 30 minutes was yeah, just for Ireland. We covered that. It was Basque fishermen that ended up. I know, but how was it popularized? Okay, Jesse? we're going to continue that. We're going to do another one later on where I'm just going to talk about Ireland and the potato because I think that people will enjoy that for whatever reason. So the French were not hot on the potato. They did not like hot potato. They thought it was very cold, in fact, very, very dumb, very stupid. They didn't like it. They refused to accept the vegetable, referring to it as hog feed. So it was only good for feeding pigs. And they believed they were the ones, the peasants believed that the tubers would cause leprosy. The clergy believed that it would make, uh, that it would cause like rampant sexuality. Which I mean, it's the French, so it's rampant Everything sexuality. causes rampant sexuality. Yeah, I mean, if you literally know how the king's, like the mistress, like that was an official position within the French court. Yeah, there's a whole other things like there are random positions. I'm going to make another future video on stuff like that for it here. But there are many different titles that people had. Uh, and yeah, King's Mistress was an official title and she was present in official ceremonies. Hey, <laughs> Okay, Gabby. So in fact, French Parliament officially banned potatoes in 1748. Potatoes were illegal to grow and consume in France for many years until a medical army officer named Antoine Auguste Parmentier, which I'm going to butcher that. In fact, can you look at the note here? I'm going to butcher that pronunciation for it here. It's French. So what does that say? I'm not saying it on here. You're not going to say it? Okay, you're, okay sure, sure, sure. Let's, let's just leave that here then. I'm sorry. So Antoine, I'm just going to call him Antoine. Or actually, no, I, I can't because later on he's called Parmentier. So Parmentier was captured by the Prussians during the Seven Years' War. And while imprisoned, Parmentier and his fellow prisoners were fed only potatoes. So it was a potato-only diet by his captors. And at first, he was horrified. Like, he thought that they were genuinely just trying to kill their prisoners by subjecting them to horrible, disease-causing plants to sustain them, but also punish them. He thought he was being tortured by giving potatoes. Oh, my God. He genuinely thought that he was being tortured by being given potatoes. But to his surprise, after many months in captivity, there was no ill effects. Nothing. Like, everything that his government had been saying was wrong. Wow. 
the government being wrong. It was like it was a goddamn conspiracy of potatoes. And it turned out to be wrong, amazingly enough. So his prison experience was transformational. He had eaten potatoes and survived. There was no leprosy, no other diseases, nothing. When he was released at the end of the war, he returned to his studies in Paris. And by 1772, his mission that he declared was to prove to the French that potatoes were delicious and good for you. And in that, actually, that same year, he managed to convince the French government to repeal the potato ban. In 1773, he even won an award from the Academy of Besancon for research that proved that potatoes were a great source of nutrition for people that were suffering from dysentery. So you had to take it slowly. You couldn't just prove that potatoes were good all around. But hey, if you're shitting yourself to <laughs> death, then the potato is actually good. <laughs> Baby steps. Baby steps. So he, he worked really hard to promote like the potato in the face of opposition from scientists, which, yeah, we're going to use that term loosely, but welcome to history when it comes to science and other things like that going well, back several hundred science years. science is not a perfect field. We know. Science is literally just, we get new information, we look for new information, we're constantly trying to disprove ourselves. That's where a null hypothesis comes from. Anyway, the moral of the story is science is constantly changing, we evolve with new information. Yes. So there were three primary different groups that pushed back on this. The first was the scientists, who, from all their studies knew that it caused all these bad things. Second were the clerics. So the clergy, the religious orders, they said that it provoked lust. And anyway, even if it didn't, even if there weren't any other effects, it was a Protestant vegetable. Because <laughs> and then, I know, I know, I knew that part would get you. But the fact of the matter was, it was something that was being heavily promoted in Prussia, which was Protestant, and France was Catholic. Mind you, they had gone through a whole series of like wars of religion and all kinds of stuff in the previous decade. So there was still some religious tension and they didn't want it because it was seen as a Protestant vegetable. And the third, and this kind of makes the most sense among all of them, but it's stupid, was the gourmands. So people didn't want to eat the potato because the potato didn't taste like anything. It was bland. It was boring. And notably, it caused flatulence. So it made people fart. It gave them the vapors. Yes. Basically, that, that, was, that, <laughs> that was the gist of it. And the thing is, you got to remember, this is before fried potatoes. This is before... Seasoning? Se it's, it's Europe in 1760s and 70s. Yes, what do you they think? They still have not found it. They raided all of these countries for these spikes. And where is it, honey? Oh, my God. Where is it? So, anyway, anyway... Uh, it was tasteless. It wasn't like a soft loaf of bread with butter. Uh, it just, it didn't really taste good to people. But he was helped, ironically enough, by people almost starving to death. So some poor wheat harvests did help his campaign. But in the end, he succeeded. And this is the quote for it. He succeeded with some methods that were known today by making it appear covetable and arranging celebrity endorsement. So this is that exact same thing as what Friedrich the Great of Prussia purportedly did, but even more so. So the first thing he did was by having some trial plantings in the garden of the palace of the Tuileries appear valuable by having them guarded heavily. But guarded heavily by day only. At night, there were no guards. So people would come in and steal the plants. Oh, no. The second thing he did 
was by managing to persuade Mary Antoinette, yes, the let them eat cake, head chopped off, that oh my lady. God, did he change her quote to let them eat potatoes? God, I wish. No. In this case, he just made her wear flowers of potatoes. So she would wear a posy of potato flowers in her bosom. So like, you know how they would have the corsets and there's an ample amount of bosom that's showing on the chest? Basically, she'd have potato flowers just sitting on her uh, breasts. I'm going to be here for Halloween next year, and I'm literally going to do that. Yeah. Wait, are you sure that would work for you? Sir! <laughs> <laughs> I, I, might get, I might get hurt later. So in addition to the flowers, he had them host grand dinners with Benjamin Franklin and other famous people. So Benjamin Franklin was at these dinners hosted by Mary Antoinette with, so with all these people in attendance in which all of the corsets from the soup all the way to the liquor were based on potatoes. So even the alcohol was made of like distilled potato. Like it was basically vodka. Like it was distilled spirits made of potatoes. So the publicity stunts were good, but they, they didn't really succeed in completely popularizing the potatoes. So he tried a new tactic. King Louis XVI, again, guy who got guillotined, uh, he granted him a large plot in the land of Sablons in 1781. Parmentier turned this land into a potato patch and then hired heavily armed guards to give a show of guarding the potatoes, just like what he had done in Tullieres. But anything so fiercely guarded had to be worth stealing, right? Like, yeah. that just makes sense. Yeah. But the guards were given very strict orders, and that was to allow any thieves that they found to just get away with whatever they took from potatoes, just like allow them to take whatever potatoes they wanted. And if there were any enter enterprising potato bandits that offered a bribe, the guards were ordered to accept it, no matter how small. It could have been someone giving someone like a gold watch, or it might just be, hey, I found this really neat stick. I want to be a potato bandit. <laughs> <laughs> New career goal. And so sure enough, before long, people were just stealing the potatoes. That was just a normal thing that happened. The thefts did help to popularize the potato, but then we saw a downswing again. It stopped. It failed. Why? The French Revolution, ironically. Which one? The first big one. I know. So here's the thing. It's, we're leading up to the French Revolution. You got to remember, it's Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. They get guillotined. All that whole thing happens. Famine, at this point, was rampant across the country. Wheat crops were failing. People needed food. And to that end, people were using potatoes to help fight starvation. And they were using it really going up into like 1785. But other parts of the country, people were still kind of frightened. And remember those whole celebrity endorsement things, the things that were used by, oh, the king and the queen are like all about this potato. Do you remember what happened in the French Revolution? Remember how they really started to feel towards um, elites and kings and queens? Yes, because that is exactly what happens when capitalism oh my God. and wage gap. Oh, my gosh. You can edit that. There was a gap, I can tell you, between their shoulder and their head at that point. They made that. <laughs> anyway, what happens when you got a brand and your celebrity endorsement completely backfires on you is that you lose popularity. It's like Jared with Subway and that whole kid situation. Um... Obviously not going into detail on that, but for those of you listening, you might know what I'm talking about. It's not a good thing. 
So it, it didn't really help that his paper was published in 1789 on potatoes immediately before the revolution began. And it was the one that was being like supported and pushed by the royal family. So the whole revolution happens. There's all these issues across the state. And then it wasn't until 1794 that potatoes really begin to gain traction in France. And that was because this was the year that Madame Marijol, or Marignol, I'm not actually sure how I'd pronounce her name. Marijol? Marijol? M-E? God, you, you can see it. I have it on my notes right there for you. <laughs> say it. Gabby, say it. You took French for so many years. My first language was French, but I refused. Oh, my God. Anyway, the Madame published a potato cookbook. And from that year on, it was so popular, potatoes became widely accepted as the food for revolutionaries. The following year, massive plots of potatoes were grown to feed rebels as they waged war against the Paris Commune. And that, dear friends, is how the potato got popular. I love that. Is this the end? Well, it kind of is from what it is that I had of notes, but one final detail that I want to provide here. We've covered Prussia. We've covered France. We have not talked about England and Ireland and that kind of thing, right? Even going into the early 1800s, England hated the potato because it was seen as, like, since it came from Spain, and at that point it was being popularized in France as the papist vegetable. So the French hated the vegetable because it was a Protestant vegetable. And then the Anglican Protestants of England hated it because it was a papal vegetable. I love this. Europe is just so fun. Yes. So then we can go everything into Ireland, but that's a whole story for another time. This was 46 Minutes of Potatoes, you guys. Are you so excited for this History of Everything podcast? He's going to go from potatoes to Nanjing. I don't know how, but tune in next week to find out exactly what his plan here is. <laughs> anyway, I thank you all for listening. If you like what you hear, then let me know. Drop Leave a comment. Leave a review, please, because reviews are exactly how podcasts grow on any platform. Reviews, shares. And everything like that. To be honest, this is the first episode, so we're going to figure it out. This is the first true episode of the first podcast that we're publishing. Any feedback that you have is greatly appreciated. And hopefully it gets better from here. Thank you once again for listening, and I'll see you all next time. Bye. Bye-bye. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.